I'm Amy Elisa Jackson, and this is In Pursuit, the podcast from Glassdoor. In every episode, we share the real stories of people navigating life's most pivotal moments at the intersection of the personal and professional. In this episode, we speak to Alicia Mendez, MSNBC anchor and host of the Latina to Latina podcast. Dubbed Miss Millennial by The Washington Post, journalism's new gladiator by Elle, and a content queen by Marie Claire, her interviews and reporting have appeared everywhere from ABC News to Bustle to Vice News. Today we're talking to her about her new book, The Likeability Trap, How to Break Free and Succeed as You Are. Alicia Mendez, welcome to In Pursuit. Alicia, what inspired you to write the book, The Likeability Trap? I am a person who cares a lot about being well-liked. It took me a while to get to that realization. I didn't always want to admit that to myself. But when I finally did, I started seeing how it played out in my personal relationships, at work. And I originally thought I was going to write a book about being a person who cares a lot and the process of learning to care less, sort of like an eat, pray, love for likability. And so as I started to talk to other women, I talked with a lot of women who, like me, care very much about what others think of them. That didn't surprise me as much as talking to women who don't care at all and who still felt like they were paying a price for being so brazenly themselves. I imagine that women who don't care were just sort of out there living their best lives, you know, dancing like nobody was watching. But it turns out even those women, particularly at work, pay a price. And so that became very interesting to me, right? This idea that we often frame like ability as a question of caring and not caring. And in reality, we live in a culture where we expect women to care. And until we grapple with that, we'll never get out from under these questions. You wrote this book over the course of sort of two pregnancies, multiple job transitions, and dozens of flights. How did your conviction or your feelings about likability evolve over time, right? Because there's not just this one set perspective on likability and then you just like write the book and there's no questions asked, there's no pauses or second guessing. How did your conviction about the topic evolve over time? Well, Amy, thank you for getting to the acknowledgments. I feel like nobody else, even the people I acknowledge did not get there. So I, I, I tip my hat <laughs> to you. You know, I anticipated that the process of doing this would lead to me caring less. And, it, and in some ways it did. In some ways, though, it also really made me treasure and value it and get clear about what it is about likability that I find important. I want other people in my presence to feel seen, to feel valued, to feel heard. All of that is important. And I think that there's a way in which to frame that that is about empathy that I want to make sure that I preserve. What I want to tease apart from that is changing myself, hemming myself in, in response to other people's perceptions of me and really coming to terms. And I am not there yet. I am trying with the reality that you cannot make someone else like you. You just can't. I can show up as the best, most authentic, wonderful version of myself and how other people will receive that person is completely outside of my control. So that's one piece of what I came to terms with. And then the other piece, because I began focusing so much on women at work and the reality of what women are up against at work and the fact that we may not for a long time be able to all say to hell with it when it comes to likability at work. Well, then if I'm doing some performance of myself at work and I'm working 40 plus hours a week, 
why in my real life, my non-work life, would I ever want to be around people who require me to show up as anything less than my full and authentic self? And so I found that very, very empowering, right? We don't, we don't get a lot of time. We don't get a lot of time with the people we love. We don't get a lot of time with the people we most feel ourselves around. So I started trimming the fat. I you know, phased out relationships that I felt weren't serving me. I shifted my attention and time and love to people who I felt really got me. And, and I did that without judgment for those past relationships, but with an eye toward really investing in the people and things that matter. How did some of the folks that you've interviewed for the book, either women who are titans of industry or just people from all walks of life, what did those interviews really shed light on for you? Was there something that was most surprising or an anecdote about success and likability that really stuck with you and, and helped you in your journey to sort of buck the likability trap? So much. One thing that struck me is that no one learns to care more over time. Right. When you talk to women who are in their 50s and 60s and have been at this, you know, meaning their careers for a while, they all absolutely learn to care less. I think that's partly the process. I think that's also having accomplishments and records that you can point to so that there's a real substance to what you're bringing to the table. I was struck by the fact that Almost all of those women who we perceive as leaders, so I talked to Valerie Jarrett, who had worked in the Obama White House. I had spoken with Mindy Grossman, who is the CEO at Weight Watchers previously. She'd been at Home Shopping Network. And the thing I heard from all of them was that you really need to have clarity of vision and you need to be able to communicate clearly over why things are a priority, why you're doing the things you're doing, why you're doing them the way that you're doing them. And if you can focus on that, and those are all things that you can control, then you can help shift your focus away from thinking about how other people are perceiving what you are doing. So having that clarity of vision, communicating that clarity of vision, and of course, being really self-aware, doing you know that self-inventory of how does the way that I show up impact others and how does that impact the results that I'm trying to bring to the table? One of the things that really stuck out in your book, and, and especially with the experts and senior women that you're you're referring to, is the fact that this journey to shaking off the desire to be liked takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And this is not something that's as simple as, you know, resharing an Instagram, you know, <laughs> quote of the day. It's not something as easy as just reading one book. But it really takes women and potentially men, as we'll talk about in a bit, a long time to really harness this confidence and this unapologetic focus with what they're doing and with things that they're good at. Is this a journey that can happen faster or is this something that honestly you really get to a place where you don't care about likability in your 50s, 60s, 70s? I mean, if you go to my Instagram saved posts, it's like 90% these inspo quotes about like, do <laughs> you too, sister. don't care who likes it. And like, I I wish it were that simple. So I think there is, is a pretty straightforward formula on this. And it, a lot of it comes to one's appetite for self-assessment, self-reflection and change. One is to get really clear with yourself about whether or not this matters to you and the degree it matters to you. So for example, I spoke with one woman who said to me that while she is not motivated by whether or not other people like her, 
it still hurts her when people don't, right? So she still is grappling with it, perhaps not in as clear a way as I'm and people like me are grappling with it, but it's still there. So one is getting really clear about that, understanding your relationship to likability, and then doing an assessment in a, in a work capacity where you say, whose opinion really matters, right? Like if your manager does not like you or if your styles do not jive, that is an actual thing that you have to tackle in order to succeed in your workplace. If a coworker three cubicles down is not your best friend, you treat each other with respect, That's really all that's necessary in the workplace. So getting really clear on that. And then one of the things I heard just again and again and again, and and your life is a testament to this, I hope that mine is, is surround yourself with a group of people. I think even more specifically, a group of women who see you, who get you, who are rooting for you, and who you can go to for gut checks. Because it's so easy to lose a sense of ourselves and to doubt ourselves, right? So we get so much critical subjective feedback as women, the way we use our hands, the way we sit in a chair, the way we comport ourselves in a meeting. And sometimes, you know, maybe that feedback's fair. And sometimes maybe it is completely just someone else's opinion. And it is so helpful to have a group, a cohort, a crew that you go to and you say, hey, here's the feedback I got. Does that sound right to you? Does this sound like the person you know? Is this how I'm showing up? Do you think it's actually a problem? That, I think, is one of one of the most important things a person can do as they grapple with their relationship to likability. I couldn't agree more. I think the group chats on my phone, yes. the number of Slack messages or WhatsApp group chats that I have with what I like to call my personal board of advisors. Mm. And they're just, they're my homegirls. They're friends that I've had for 15, 20 years, even three years, but folks that I gut check and check in with and Which say, hey, I, Amy, what's your thought on this? And I often remind people, that may mean that they tell you that you are, in fact, wrong. Correct. Like a really good friend will be willing to tell you when you are messing up. That's part of the package. And especially they'll tell you, as in the case with likability, that like, okay, you're not, maybe you're not trying to buck the trend of likability. You're just being an asshole. Or you're, <laughs> you're not really, you're not really being the leader that you can be. The alternate to, you know, not falling into the likability trap is to skew the complete opposite direction and just, you know, be woman, hear me roar. Nobody can tell me anything like I don't want to be liked. I'm bucking the system. I'm doing me. And there are pitfalls to that as well. Mm -hmm. In your book, you talk about that conundrum and you touched on this a little bit just a moment ago. The conundrum that women face when trying to be likable and successful in the workplace what is expected of women is also uh, is often perceived to be the opposite of what's required to be a leader or a CEO, right? This idea that a woman is expected to be warm and communal and uplifting, but then what's required of a leader typically is this ambition and this self-reliance. How can badass women really navigate this trap because it feels like you take two steps forward and two steps back, as my girl Paula Abdul says. <laughs> Sorry, greatest, shout out to Paula greatest, Abdul. Greatest she, music video of all time. Greatest music video of all time. Fantastic. <laughs> That's all exactly right. I, I call it the Goldilocks conundrum because it reminds me of Goldilocks trying all of those bowls of porridge. And, you know, a woman is either too hot or too cold, but she never seems to be quite right. What was really important to me was in painstaking detail to lay out the ways in which this shows up for women 
in the workplace. Because I think part of what has happened is our mothers contended with a different type of sexism than the sexism that we're contending with. The sexism 30 years ago was much more overt. Now it's much more subtle. And you could say, that's a good thing. I think it actually makes sexism much more complicated because it's much harder to call out, right? If I give you feedback and I say, Amy, you're just too assertive. It's hard to know. Are you actually assertive in a way that makes it harder to get your job done? Or are you just contending with your boss's bias? So one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book is the fact that every little thing a woman does on the path to success has the potential to make her less likable, right? Like if you go and you advocate for yourself, advocate for a promotion, a better job title, a raise, all of those things can make a woman less likable. And that is a real penalty. There's a lot of this sort of go girl career advice that I believe is well-intentioned that says like, well, who cares? You march in there and you ask for what you want. I think it's just really more complicated than that for a lot of entry-level women, for a lot of middle management women, and I'm sure you and I will talk about this, it's particularly challenging for women of color. And so I think if we want to be fair to women about the way in which they take control of their own careers, then we also have to be honest about the fact that all of these things we do in the interest of advocating for ourselves is very complicated and we are walking a tightrope and to me, women need to really trust themselves. Like I look at my cohort of women and they're so smart. They're so savvy. They're very often reading the room the right way. And that means they're making a case by case decision on how to execute all of these questions. There's no there's no blanket answer, right? There's no like, here's yeah. just how you do it. You go in there and you bat your lashes and you say it's really for the team. Like, yeah, all the research would tell you that if you argue on behalf of a team instead of yourself, that that's better. But it's not foolproof. It doesn't always work. So you got to get really sharp and really savvy. And also, we got to be honest with women about what they're up against. In many ways, when I was reading your book and I'm listening to you now, it just feels like women are asked to really identify the problem and find their own solution. Yep. We write the books. We hire life coaches. We find sponsors. We try to reprogram ourselves. We take all the boot camps on, you know, power posing and negotiating like a boss. What are just some of the conversations that the fellas need to be having about these issues? What what do men need to be talking about when it comes to this? Because is it only our issue? Is it only our problem to solve? No. And to also be fair, men are trapped in a very narrow definition of how they're allowed to show up at work, right? Like in as much as there is a penalty for women who show up and communicate anger, even righteous, totally reasoned anger. There's a penalty for women when we do that. There's a penalty for men who cry at work, right? They're seen as weak. They're seen as not being leaders. So big, big picture sense, we just want to expand that definition so that strength is not defined so narrowly and warmth is something that you can have and maintain and express without it compromising your strength. For all of us, though, I think there are so many, you know, tools and tips as someone I know who runs a lady magazine says the ladies love the tips like you know like here's what you do here are the three things you do <laughs> but they're most powerful when we do them for each other so in as much as I can tell you the things that you can do in a feedback session those things are even more powerful for you whichever gender whatever gender you are when you do them on behalf of someone else so that if I'm in an office and I hear someone say mm, 
Amy's just a little indecisive. I would say, is she indecisive or is she deliberate? Because those are two very different ways of looking at the same set of behavior, right? Indecisive says she can't make a decision. Deliberate says she's very careful about every decision she makes. So if I'm choosing between working with someone who's indecisive and someone who's deliberate, I'm always going to choose to work with the person who's deliberate. And so reframing those things for other people, you know, is she emotional or is she passionate about her work? Because I want to work with people who are passionate about their work. Is she aggressive or is she encouraging her team to pursue results? Those words matter. Catalyst has a lot of great language around this that I highly recommend everyone take a look at. Because when we do those things for others, that's when we really start to shift things. And that's what we need allies to do for us. I mean, by that, I mean, if you are a man in the workplace, do it for the women in the workplace. If you are a white woman in the workplace, then you need to be doing it for the women of color in the workplace. You need to really push back when you hear people express preferences as absolute truths. I love that. One of the things I was talking about with a couple of my friends who happen to be Chinese-American men, um, and we were talking about the likability trap. And I was like, hey, guys, do you face this desire to be liked and this pressure? And I was sort of walking them through your your principle around you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And so this, this principle that you outline in the book, that as a woman, the more successful you become, the less others will like you. And it's interesting because for them as as men, they definitely felt that way. Absolutely. As Chinese-American men. Mm-hmm. And they felt like, OK, I'm go along to get along. I will be passed up for promotion. But the moment I exercise my strength or my voice or lean into something, people kind of don't like me or they don't get invited out for drinks. Is this something that you're hearing from the men, particularly men of color, um, that they're aligning sort of with what women are experiencing? Absolutely. And I mean, it plays out differently, right? I mean, for Asian Americans, men and women, especially women, but men and women, there is an expectation of submissiveness. So if you look at all of these stats from Silicon Valley, you'll see that there are these tremendous numbers of Asian American employees, but very few Asian Americans who are actually leading those organizations or leading those teams. And that is in part because there is this cultural expectation of submissiveness, that there's an expectation that an Asian American shows up as a worker bee. And so when that person, male or female, tries to take control, assert themselves, do any of the things you need to do in order to be seen as a leader, they immediately violate that expectation and they become less likable. And so they're grappling with that. I mean, black men at work are always grappling with this question of assertiveness being read as anger. Um, I'm sure you saw the part in the book because it's such a like fun study about babyface and how if you are a white man who wants to be a CEO, babyface, meaning rounded features, makes you seem less powerful. People take you less seriously. But if you are a black man who has those more rounded features they call babyface, it actually offsets some of the bias that black men experience in the workplace where they are seen as too assertive or too aggressive and can actually work to their advantage. So there are all of these things about the way you look that you may not even be aware of that come into play for men and for women alike. 
it's hard not to get frustrated or get, you know, honestly pissed because there's so much talk in the workplace now about being authentic leaders and that authentic people are well liked. And But it's a tall order to ask someone to be more authentic. You can't really fake it, but it's tough because how do you walk that road without feeling like you're curating a version of yourself to seem more like a boss or seem more powerful than you really feel? You're trying to balance being authentic, but you don't want to be too real in the workplace but you're trying to put forward the type of person that gets the promotion, that leads the team, that seals the deal, Mm -hmm. it can be overwhelming. It is incredibly overwhelming. And that is what I was most struck by, which is where those of us who have this on our radar know that we are losing a lot of time to the amount of time that we spend thinking about this question and self-modulating around this question. There is now this call to bring your whole self to work that I think is the goal, but we are so far from there. And something that struck me as deeply funny in a perverse way was that it seemed when someone worked for an organization that was really adamant about bringing your whole self to work, where it's like, you know, they would have, you know, full company meetings where they'd be like, we just want to remind everyone to bring yourself to work. Those places were often doing the worst job of actually creating culture and environment where that was possible so that there was this call to bring your whole self to work. But the organization, the organization has to do the tough work, right? Right now, it has been thrust on individuals to do the tough work. It has to be about organizations making it a priority, equipping managers to really allow people to show up as their full selves. So many workplaces are so far from actually being there is the truth. And especially for those of us who come from minority communities, there's often a sense on the part of the dominant culture that of what that authentic self should be. Right. So like I spoke with a lot of people of color who had had interactions in the workplace that basically boiled down to like, well, I have a sense of how. A Latina is supposed to show up in the workplace and you're not you're not it. So could you be a little bit more of what I was expecting? I spoke with a black woman attorney who, you know, one of her first days of work had been pulled into the office of a woman partner, a white woman. And the woman, again, well-intentioned, I imagine, said, I just want you to know this can be a really tough environment. I understand that it's a tough environment. You know, I grew up without a lot of means and this environment is strange for me. So I just want you to know, like, I'm here for you. And the black woman attorney who she was speaking with was like, um, I'm upper middle class. I went to boarding school like this doesn't resonate with me at all. So thank you so much. But also you have an idea of who I'm supposed to be that doesn't match at all with who I am. And so... All of that is happening all at the same time that we're being told to be our best authentic selves. I feel like it's playing out in very interesting ways in the job interview scenario, right? You're told to be, as a woman, sort of enthusiastic without seeming like a tart, as you write in your book, to show interest without seeming desperate. We're all balancing this as we're applying for a job. You want to be liked, but you want to be liked for the right reasons. Has this happened to you in a job interview in the course of your career as a journalist and now podcaster? It has happened so many times and in so many ways, some subtle, some not. I think one of the ways that makes my work different is that because I do work on air, my aesthetic, the way that I self-present, 
becomes a topic of conversation in a way that would be an HR violation if I were like an accountant, you know, so that there has been a lot of conversation about my hair, for example. And does my hair make me look Latina enough? Does it come off as too one-dimensional on air? I mean, there's all of this talk that is supposed to be in the service of something that, like it or not, is a visual medium. But for me, hits me very deep in the way that I imagine and see myself, right? It's not just a conversation about hair. I mean, there's not a black woman who'll hear this conversation and not understand <laughs> that, right? You just, but yeah, it comes up a lot. And I had, a, I had an awesome session with a career coach where, you know, you fill out this multiple choice test and then they do an assessment of you based on it. And one of the things that he said to me about myself that rang very true is that while I am not comfortable with lateral confrontation or even with confrontation with someone I might manage, I'm very comfortable with confrontation with anyone I perceive as having more power than I do. And especially when I am lobbying on behalf of a team or group, right? Like I am very comfortable going into an executive and making a case about an inequity. You can't show up that way in a job interview. (laughs) You know, you don't, that's not a thing you want to broadcast because that sets off alarm bells for people. And so I often feel that I have to be careful about modulating around that particular skill set and intuition. How do you navigate that critical feedback, if you will, about your appearance? Because even though the majority of our listeners are not amazing on-air talent or anchors at MSNBC, research shows that women are judged professionally by how they look and how they show up at work and what they wear as a perception of capability, of smarts, of promotability, all of those things. How did you and how do you on an ongoing basis sort of navigate that feedback, either not letting it hit you to your core or brushing it off? What are the defenses that you have built up? I would be lying if I said that I had this all figured out. And, you know, it was funny when I was when I was writing this book, my book agent had a great piece of feedback that I think applies to life more generally, which is he said, it's much more interesting to be with a person who is still in process than it is to meet someone who is fully aligned and fully refined at the end of their journey. So I will be honest with you about the fact that those things I haven't quite figured out, again, because it is more complicated. It would be very easy for me to say, if someone gives you that feedback, you say, screw you, I'm doing me, I don't care, that's it. (laughs) We're constantly making all of these little decisions about which fight we want to fight. And so to me, I'm, I'm not a particularly aesthetically oriented person. And so some of those things I am willing to concede on because there are other fights that I would rather have. But I know people for whom that stuff is very important, right? The, the length of their hair, the jewelry that they wear, the colors or the complete lack of color that they wear to the office. Like, if that is truly important to you, then, of course, you should feel comfortable affirming that. But again, I want to be honest with the fact that if you work in an office, right, if you're like in a corporate law firm and everybody comes in in a black Ann Taylor suit and you're the one who's there in hot pink, then you are contending with the reality of standing out in a very obvious way. And there are people who love that and thrive on that. And that is for them. 
And there are other people who feel like they already stick out in so many ways that that is just another way in which they're contending with otherness. And so I trust you to do you the best you can. And what I'm almost being more more mindful of is when you are working for an organization and you feel like you keep running up against this feedback or these questions of the way you are naturally being a fit with the organization or not being aligned with the organization or you being asked to change or you being told that there's not opportunity for you because of the way you are. When people tell you those things, believe them in the sense that that may not be the place for you. I would like to to live in a utopia where all organizations were built for all people. That's that's not the way things are built right now. And so if you have spent a significant amount of time somewhere, if you have gone to your, you know, group of trusted friends and advisors, your kitchen cabinet, and they have said to you, I actually don't think this is you. I think it is the organization. At some point, you have to decide if you want to stay if that's really serving you and if you will ever be allowed to fully show up as yourself and be valued in that place. It's making me think a lot about a quote that Oprah said, and she says it often. She says, you know, when someone shows you who they are, believe believe them them Mm -hmm. the first time. And I think it doesn't just go for, you know, relationships or someone that you're trying to be romantic with, but it also goes for the workplace. When you're starting to get those clues and you're picking up on what is or is not culture fit, what is or is not considered correct, and that doesn't align with you, or it does and you're figuring it out, you know, really believe what you're seeing. Believe the culture that you're seeing at the time. It's also, Amy, why I think that you see a lot more people of your and my generation having the types of careers that you and I have where There are various pieces that are put together to form a composite because I do think it's also hard to assume that we can be our full selves or an expression of our full selves in any one place. Correct. Or that we can have the full value and fulfillment of our work in one place. And so I think what you and I have done is often harder because it is harder to find those opportunities and harder to cobble them together in a way that makes sense. But a lot of the people I know who are happiest have some version of what you and I have. Exactly. It's weaving a tapestry of a career that you can really be proud of and picking and choosing locations and companies and projects that really fulfill you to create the career that you want, as opposed to really wanting to be 100% fulfilled by one particular company. Yep. One of the undercurrents of our conversation is really around the emotional cost of wanting to be liked, right? You don't navigate likability or the likability trap without some emotional tax, whether that's a sleepless night, worrying about whether or not your team really likes you or the direction that you're taking the company in, or whether you're just at odds with whether or not your boss really likes you. All of these things have an emotional cost. How have you sort of navigated the the tax of the likability trap, if you will? I found it so helpful to step back and recognize how much of this is systematic. I always approached these questions as if there were something wrong with me, right? If I were just like not showing up the right way or if I were reading all of these career guides and just somehow not executing it the right way, I really thought this was on me. And it has been so, so helpful to realize that a lot of this is about the way that systems and organizations and structures are set up. That has taken a huge weight off of my shoulder. 
self-care has become such a buzzy term that I, I like can barely get it out of my mouth without rolling my eyes <laughs> because it like evokes like, a, you know, a hot bath. And, and that may be it for someone. But having enough time away from work, enough time for yourself, enough time tuned into things that enrich and fulfill and being surrounded by people who allow you to be your best self. I think that for me, the best inoculation against the emotional cost of being a person who cares. You know, I I will have and also being really able to say like, this is bugging me. This happened today and I feel weird about it. And, you know, I think this is what went down. And so often just sort of having somebody on the other side is like, is that actually what happened or is that your interpretation of what happened? Because those are different things. And, you know, I like to pride myself on my reading of others and my intuition. I am not right 100% of the time, as much as I hate to admit that. And so remembering that you can have those interactions and the feeling that you walk away with is often only your interpretation of it. And coming back to that constantly, I think, is a powerful reminder. It's funny that that you're saying that your natural tendency was to read up on everything, you know, with with likability and, and try to understand it and really, you know, identify the problem in yourself, etc. But my when I sort of think about my grappling with likability, I'm almost loath to say, oh, it's the system or that there are these architectures that are sort of built up that sort of make me feel this way or make me wrestle with with likability i'm almost like i don't want to admit that there's these outside forces i can't do anything about well especially (laughs) especially if you sort of abide by the victim player mentality where you want to be a player (laughs) in your own life then i know you know and i don't want i don't want to suggest you have to victimize i think though in order to be a player and in order to navigate you have to understand the field and you have to understand the plays and so much of what i wanted to equip people with was that what are some of the ways that, you know, managers or employers can address the likability trap? I think you outlined a couple of ways that we as sort of colleagues can go to bat for one another. But what really needs to change in the workplace to start to address these outdated notions? So much of the way this is all communicated in a formal capacity is in the form of evaluations and reviews. And so often those reviews really for women focus on critical stylistic feedback. So one way is to do a a really in-depth review of your assessments of how you evaluate people, making sure that evaluations are 360. So it's not if, if just your manager is evaluating you, then you have one person's assessment of you. And if that person's style is the same as your style, then you might get a great review that doesn't have anything to do with your results. If that person's style is diametrically opposed to yours, you may get a review that seems horrible, but is really only a reflection of that person. So having reviews that are done by multiple people who can look at a person from various perspectives and that really focuses on results and outcomes so that There may be something in your style that does impact the results of your work, but that feedback is most valuable when those two things are tied together. If someone tells me that I'm too assertive, I have no idea what to do with that. If someone tells me I am too assertive and that means that my team spends more time working around me than actually doing their work and that's 
creating a delay in projects and presentations. Okay, like that I can actually sort of begin to wrap my mind around. And then the other thing is there is such an incredible value in sponsorship. This is this idea from Sylvia Ann Hewlett. She has an incredible book that I highly recommend to everyone. I think our generation was raised with this idea that like mentorship was the golden ticket in our careers. And mentorship is incredible you know, someone who can give you advice and counsel. But there is a fundamental difference between somebody who does that and a sponsor, someone who actually introduces you to people, opens doors, puts you on the most important teams, is constantly talking about you. Those things, someone who will go to the mat for you, and specifically around the question of likability, someone who will provide cover for you. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who allows you to take big risks, knowing that It won't be you always who has to defend the outcomes. It won't always be you who has to defend the way that you did something. That's huge. And a lot of that comes down to whether an organization makes sponsorship or just that type of relationship. Because I also heard from people who felt that sponsorship was very transactional, but who make that really important. And that is particularly important for people of color because we want to be sponsored disproportionately and are under-sponsored. And that's for a few reasons. I mean, one of it is other people of color in the organization may not want to sponsor someone who's also a person of color for fear of the fact that it'll look like, you know, it's favoritism based on shared identity rather than on merit. There's also a concern on the part of people of color that they just don't have the social or political capital to pull themselves through, much less to pull somebody else through. So those organizationally are things that may sound really basic, but can change a lot of the way that we find ourselves talking about the way that people lead. I like to think of sponsorship as opposed to mentorship. Mentorship is sort of what you're saying to someone while they're in the room. And sponsorship is what that person, that that sponsor is saying about you when you're not in the room. I love that and advocating for you in rooms that you either cannot be in or are not in. Especially feel that way as a woman of color, how important that is to have sponsors that don't just look like you, but have your best interests as well as your your best career move in mind. I just think sometimes being a little bit transparent about the move you're trying to make in your career, whether it's a promotion, a stretch assignment, a project, having people who you know will go to bat for you in a room that you can't or won't be in is invaluable. I mean, one of the weird things about being in my mid-30s is that sometimes I also have to remind myself that I am now that person, right? Like you that just is spend- a, It's a different switch. I don't know that anyone tells you it when is. all of a sudden you no longer have a mentor or have a sponsor. You're like, now you, you need to start sponsor. mentoring and yeah. sponsoring. <laughs> and so I say that to you. You know, once I, um, when I was at HuffPost Live, I interviewed Star Jones, and she has a great little tidbit, which is that if you want a mentor— and she was talking about mentorship, but it certainly applies to sponsorship, that you really have to ask someone, like, will you take me on and will you help be responsible for my career? And that a lot of the work and action is actually on the part of the mentee, right? Like, people are busy. People have a lot going on. People may have the want and desire to help, and still you need to be really clear with people about how they can be helpful to you in an actionable way. Can you write these three emails for me? Can you introduce me to this person? And the maintenance of that relationship should be as much, if not more, on the part of the mentee or the sponsoree than it is on the other person. Absolutely. It makes me think of a 
conversation that I once had with Myleek Teal, who's the founder and CEO of Curlbox, which is a beauty subscription company. And she had gotten to this point in her career. And she says, women are always asking me to be their mentor, be their mentor. Like they, she would just get emails that just said, be my mentor. <laughs> and she was like, I need an actionable request. Right. I need a, like specificity of what you need and why I am the specific person that can help you do that. And team me up for success. And then also offer something in return as a mentee or sponsoree. It can't just be this one way. But as you sort of mentioned, that there is a large responsibility on the part of the mentee. It's not just like mentors doing everything for you. Can I ask you a question, Amy? Sure. Do you care about whether or not other people like you? I do care. I care perhaps probably too much. I've tried to work on it over the years. But it's tricky, especially in feedback-rich company cultures where you're very, very mindful of receiving feedback not only from your managers and bosses, but also from those who are more junior to you. So I think I try to, to buck the likability piece, but I really do genuinely care. I think I care not because I just want to be liked, but I never want someone to misinterpret my best intentions. Yep. I have nothing but good intentions for everyone that I work with. And so I I hate when I am misinterpreted. And that like I think that makes me want to be liked. Absolutely. And I think also wanting to be liked when I stand out in a space. I'm used to being the only one, whether that's, you know, there's very few of us in high school or very few of us in college or, you know, in the in the work environment. So you want to be liked, but you're trying to carve out that niche of comfort for yourself, I think. Mm-hmm. It's funny, though, because it's an ongoing well, I process. <laughs> well, and it's also, but wait, this is part of what I learned, too, which is I don't know you. I follow you on social media platforms consuming you that way would not necessarily guess that you are someone who cares in the sense that you seem very self-aligned, you seem very joyful, and your presentation of self doesn't feel like a performance to me ever. And I think this is part of what makes this conversation really complicated, which is that we in general have no idea what other people are going through. But I think it is really easy to misread how much someone does or doesn't care and how much effort they're putting in. I think it's it's tough because, you know, I love social media. I'm definitely someone who, you know, goes on Instagram on a regular daily basis. But it is still a highlight reel of everyone's life. And it's a highlight reel of just the curated moments. And I don't necessarily just believe that it's the moments that are the best in your life. But in many ways, they're still curated. Even if it's a sad day and it's a sad post or it's a frustrating day, you're still thinking about the filter. Do I have a double chin? <laughs> like, what is, is someone going to misinterpret this? Yeah. What's the caption? Is, is, like, if I say something harsh, should I put a heart behind it and a smiley face? You know, all of those things. I think it's really hard in today's society. I don't care whether you're 13 or 73. You're trying in many ways to still be liked. And I think it gets easier, as you mentioned, over time. But you're never 100% unapologetic. It strikes me that we've spent so much time as a society talking about teens and social media and this comparison culture. But I don't think we've been honest enough about the fact that even adults feel that pressure. Absolutely. And that 
we used to live in a society where there was an element of comparison to your neighbor or to a person who was lateral to you at work. Social media, the democratization of social media has meant this like opening of the world that can be incredible in ways because we have access and exposure to people who are so outside of our immediate surroundings. It also, though, has this element of like, I, you know, I, I'm a mom, so I follow other moms who have tidier pantries and who seem to like always be preparing these awesome lunches for their kids. And so I'm not just comparing myself to the other harried moms I'm seeing at drop-off. I'm comparing myself to a universe of people that I will never know. The likability is it's on everyone's mind. It's the workplace. It's the election cycle. It's moms. It's definitely there for moms. It's, you know, careers, whether you're on LinkedIn and you're browsing around and you're like, shit, they have a promotion. I didn't get that promotion. Or they just changed jobs like the comparathon, as I like to call it. And this likability trap are everywhere in our culture right now. And it's it's hard to not be affected. And I think, yeah, we talk about it for that Gen Z or the the teenagers, but it has permeated the upper echelons yes, of the we age. Yes, we senior millennials have been affected as well. Exactly. The senior millennials. But even if you look at the baby boomers, they're all trading pictures of their children who are successful. Nobody's showing pictures of the, of the child who's kind of, you know, a screw up or not really doing anything. Or they show the amazing vacation photos when they're going to Bora Bora and may not, you know, show, you know, something that's really crappy in their lives. Everyone's doing the same thing. We're all subject to the likability trap. A lot of people say that it's just easy to tell someone, oh, just stop caring. Stop. Just don't care what people think about you. However, it's pretty challenging to sort of buck the trend and change behavior, as we've sort of been talking about. How have you personally started the process of not falling into the trap of likability? Because it's not necessarily just not caring, but it's recognizing the likability trap and saying, you know what, I'm not going to fall into that. It's recognizing it. It's saying I'm not going to fall into it. And then for someone like me who has actively tried to break up these thought patterns, there is the truth that this is not a one-time choice. That's often how we frame it, right? Like just make the choice to not care anymore. And I would like to do that the way I'd like to, you know, just like make a choice to commit myself to working out seven days a week. <laughs> like that's <laughs> that is logistically complicated. And so what then I find happens, and I think this manifests in different ways in different people's lives, is that I'll say, okay, I'm, I'm going to care less. And that becomes like a promise to myself. And then I will find myself in a social situation, in a work dialogue, and I will walk away and I will have that thought like, ooh, like, did that land right? Did, like, did that person like me? And then I will get so frustrated with myself for going there, right? Where it's like, we did all this work, Alicia. We identified the problem. <laughs> we wrote a whole book about this and we are still talking about this. And so for me, there also has to be an element of self-forgiveness that this is a journey and a process that you don't spend 36 years caring about something and then instantly decide not to care and have that be that. I do find it very helpful to shift back to what can I control? So, as I just said, sometimes it's a social interaction, sometimes it's an interaction with a coworker. What I can say to myself and answer was, did I communicate my intent? Was I clear in that communication? 
Would I like to revisit that communication? Those are all things I can control. Whether or not the other person liked me is outside of my control. So I have tried to shift my attention to the actual ways I am showing up, if there's clarity around that, and if there's not being willing to go back and readdress things. I think that's okay too. But to not hand over all my power to a perception that I have no control over. I love that. And I love your example of sort of falling off the likability wagon. <laughs> I really do appreciate it, sis. Because I was like, I'm going to, I'm just going to fail at this for a little bit. And I know that there's going to be slip ups. There are going to be moments where I post something or I say something and I'm going to wonder, oh my God, what do they think of me? Did I do the right thing? You know, do they like well, me? Especially because you get, you get so vulnerable. I mean, that's, that mm-hmm. is, that is the other challenge, which is that if you share of yourself, in a way that is deeply meaningful to you. If you share your joy and your grief, if you share images of your personal life, there is a lot of yourself and a lot of your heart that you are putting on the line. And so our social compact with each other is that we're asking, we're hoping that other people will respect and interpret that as it is intended. And the problem is we can't really control that. Right. How that lands. So every time we do that, every time you who I find to be just a very generous person, share a piece of your life, you're taking a chance. You're trusting all of us to understand it as it is meant. And I think we do each other a service when we honor that intent. But it can feel like a gamble every time. Alicia, lastly, looking ahead, what are you most in pursuit of? A.K.A. what's next? I have been on a shift this week where I have been waking up at 1.30 in the morning to pump milk for my baby and then go do the earliest shift at work. So I am in pursuit of sleep at the moment. <laughs> like just like a solid, I would take six hours, Amy, like that would be good enough for me. You need your full eight, I I'm do. telling you. Like. And then as it relates to career and pursuit... Everyone tried to warn me about this, so I will share this for anyone else who's ever thought about writing a book, which is there's the writing of the book and you pour yourself into that. That's like maybe 10% of the whole thing because then you have to help your book and more importantly, your message find an audience. And that is the actual work of the pursuit, right? Like that is the thing that I am now dedicating myself to, which is I feel like I uncovered all of these truths. I feel like I rounded up a bunch of great advice. And now I want to bring that to as many people as possible. I love it. Well, thank you so much for bringing it to the audience of In Pursuit. We so appreciate you taking the time, Alicia. I appreciate you, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to In Pursuit, the podcast from Glassdoor. This episode was produced by Lee Schneider and Allison Sullivan. Music by Epidemic Sound. Production by Red Cup Agency. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on Apple, don't forget to share the love. Give us some stars. Leave a comment. Thanks for listening. I'm Amy Elisa Jackson, and this is In Pursuit.